book of Luke here, Luke chapter 4. Wanted to uh, share a quick announcement here before we get going on with the rest of the message. Luke chapter 4 is we're going to be at. Quick, uh, quick announcement here. Uh, some people have asked about this, and we've been announcing it, but I uh, haven't got a chance to share it here at the 10 o'clock service yet. Uh, some people have been wondering and asking about the uh, bus sitting out there in the, uh, obviously, parking lot of the church, and wanted to kind of share a little bit of the vision behind that. Uh, we've been really blessed last few years to be able to go into Belmore and uh, be able to do uh, VBSs over there in Belmore. We've had a chance to do, like, a fall festival over there. Uh, the town has been so nice. The mayor has been so nice. We've got a chance to go door-to-door -door a couple times there and invite the town out to things, and we have been so blessed to get a chance to get to know them. And one of the things that's always popped up at the community meals that we've done or the VBSs is people have always said, we'd love to come out to church. Uh, Belmore doesn't have a church there in town anymore. And they've always said, we'd love to get a chance to come out to church, but transportation is an issue for a lot of the residents over there. And so we've been praying about this for quite some time, and God opened a door, and we were able to go purchase a bus. And hopefully here, starting in September, uh, the goal is to start weekly uh, bus service, to be able to go over to Belmore, pick them up, and uh, bring them out here to church. You know, one of the passages that's really been heavy on our heart is where Christ said in one of the parables is to go into the highways and byways and bring them in. And we've had some people that have been very nice to go into Belmore and provide rides. The truth of the matter is there were so many people that wanted to go, they ran out of space. And this is something we really felt heavy on the heart to say, hey, let's, let's do this. Let's go pick up people and let's bring them in. That's part of the ministry of Christ is just to show the love and have them come. So we've been blessed to get to know the town, and hopefully they've been blessed to get to know us. And that's something we're hoping to start here in the next month or so. So we just ask for prayer on that, and it will be a, hopefully a real blessing to everybody. So with that being said, we're going to be in Luke here, chapter 4. And Lord willing, time willing, we're going to do verses 31 through 41. Now, here in our study in Luke, Christ is really to beginning his public ministry. And part of the public ministry of Christ is he's constantly healing the sick. He's constantly casting out the demons. He's doing all these things. And so the subject today, from verses 31 through 41, are those two things, healing of the sick and casting out the unclean demons. Now, this is part of the beauty of going verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the Bible. If we were doing a topical, I don't know if I would ever pick, hey, let's talk about demons on a Sunday morning. It's just not something you normally would pick. But when you go through the Gospels, all four Gospel accounts, there are so many references to healing and the raising of the dead and the casting out of sickness and the unclean demons. You, you, you can't just skip over that stuff. And a lot of times what we like to do as a body or as a group of people is things we don't fully grasp and understand, things that are a little bit beyond us spiritually, we have a tendency to say, I, I don't want to know about it. That's just a whole different realm. That's a whole different world, and I don't want to get into it, so let's skip that part, and let's just talk about him walking on the water. Well, to get the full context of everything, it's important to see why he does these things. Now, I want to share this out. Here's the main point of the lesson. What you're going to see here is, first off, Christ having power over the curse. A lot of times people come up to me and say, it's really difficult for me to believe in a God that allows this world to be the way it is. And I always usually tell them, if this is the way God wanted the world, it would be really difficult for me to believe in a God like that too. This is not the way God wants the world. Let's just make that point abundantly clear. The way God wanted the world is found in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. So the physical, spiritual, and emotional pain that you're going through right now is not what God's initial intentions were in any way whatsoever. That is part of the curse. When Adam and Eve fell in sin in Genesis 3, the whole world became cursed. The Bible says that the world was given over to the enemy. So this world that we live in is the enemy's world. He's the God of this age, according to the Bible. Now Christ comes back in the second coming, and he retakes that, and that's all important to know. And I'm not trying to downplay that, but for right now, 
This is a cursed world. Well, Jesus, healing the sick, casting out the demons, it shows that he has power over the curse, which takes us to our next one. Christ has power over the enemy. See, so often we use this word battle, that we're in a spiritual battle. And that's a biblical term. We are in a spiritual battle. But we almost get this idea that we're in this spiritual battle of Jesus and Satan and duking it out and who's going to get the lead. My goodness, Christ created the enemy. So when Jesus is casting out the demons here, the unclean, he is showing his power over the enemy. That's why those are in there. And the last one, Christ has power over life and death. He has power over sickness. So the reason all these references are here to casting out the unclean demons and to raising the dead and healing the sick, it shows that Christ has power over the curse, has power over the enemy, and has power over life and death. With that being said, if he has power over the curse, power over the enemy, and power over life and death, why do we get worried about anything? He's got it all taken care of. He has shown his power is immense, and he shows that there is nobody or anything that can topple him. But yet... We live here in northwest Ohio, and we get worked up about this. We get nervous about that. We get anxious about this. But yet we have a Savior that raised the dead. We had a Savior that cast out the demons. We had a Savior that has power over the curse in life and death. But yet we're concerned. We're worried. No. By Him doing these things, it shows the power He has and the blessing we have in Him being our Savior. Because if He could do those things, He can help us through whatever we're facing today without any problems. With that being said, let's read verses 31 through 41 to get the full context, and we'll come back and break this down. It says, Then He went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and was teaching them on the Sabbaths. And they were astonished at His teaching, for His word was with authority. Now in the synagogue there was a man who had a spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying, Let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet, and come out of him. When the demon had thrown him in their midst, it came out of him and did not hurt him. And they were all amazed and spoke among themselves, saying, What a word this is. For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And the report about him went out to every place in the surrounding region. Now he rose from the synagogue and entered Simon's house. But Simon's wife's mother was sick with a high fever, and they made request of him concerning her. So he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and served him. When the sun was setting, all those who were any sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying out and saying, You are the Christ, Son of God. And he, rebuking them, did not allow them to speak, for they knew that he was the Christ. Now, quite some topics there, to say the least. Let's talk about this. Let's do healing first. Healing is always a fascinating thing, verses 38 and 39. You see Simon, who is Peter. His mother-in-law gets healed. Fascinating thing to stop and kind of talk about. Let's talk about this for a little bit. Now, I think it's interesting, no, when it comes to healing. We've talked about this numerous times out here, that healing is mentioned, obviously, throughout the Gospels, and even in the book of Acts, it's mentioned in the epistles. But one thing you see with Christ, Christ never was doing the healing for attention. This is what you see nowadays. When you see people wanting to do healing and healing ministries, it's almost like they're trying to make themselves the focus of it. They're trying to elevate themselves to some super status. And Christ, if anything, was trying to keep it in the background a little bit. In fact, when he healed Jairus' daughter, he cleared the room. And he said, I just want these people in with me. I just want Peter, John, and James, and Mom and Dad. Now, from a PR perspective, that's a really dumb move, Christ. You know, heal everybody. I mean, the way people do it now is they say, come see a healing service. It's going to be Friday at 7 o'clock. Now, I don't know exactly how they know that the Spirit is going to move Friday at 7 o'clock and that there's going to be a sick person there that needs to be healed. I don't know how they know that, but that's the way it is because the posters have it printed up. Jesus, on the other hand, and in the Bible, anytime there was a healing, it was almost spontaneous. It was the Lord moved, the Spirit moved, and that's when it happened. 
In Mark chapter 7, there's this deaf mute man that needed healed, and there was this huge group of people. So what did Jesus do? He actually pulled the guy aside and did it alone over to the side. Because why? Jesus was not doing the healing for attention. Jesus' mission was to come die on the cross for your sins and my sins. That was his mission. Now, he healed people along the way, which pointed to him being the Messiah, but he never used it as some type of circus sideshow to bring attention to himself. He never did. Now, let's talk about the different types of healing here. Now, the one what we're talking about here in verses 38 and 39, this is the instant one. This is the one we always want. Look at verse 39. So he stood over her, rebuked the fever, and it left her, and immediately she arose and served them. Immediately. There's a blind man in Luke 18 where it says, immediately he received his sight. These are the ones we always pray for. These are the ones we always want. And these are the ones that we're always disappointed when it doesn't happen immediately. There's other different types of healings, which we'll get to in a little bit. But what we see right here is this power of an immediate, instantaneous healing. Those are fascinating. It's a glimpse into the spiritual world that we normally don't see. And to think that the Lord had the power to do that, it's just something that is very impressive that only the Messiah could do. And you see this instantaneous, miraculous healing immediately. Now, the one we're more familiar with and the one that we find actually very disappointing and it's very not exciting in any way whatsoever is what I like to call the natural miracle of healing. Your body gets hurt and guess what happens? It heals. Okay, well, that's not really miraculous, is it? I, I kind of think it is. We got five boys at home. Every single day there is blood and bruises and cuts and scrapes. And those things heal up. And I'm surprised it's not worse than what it is. The other day I was out here working and Dawn called me up and she goes, do you have time for a story? Anytime she calls up and says she had time for a story, I know it's going to be good. I said, sure. She goes, well, the boys are downstairs playing in the basement. And um, she goes, Ken and our third one, the boys said that he climbed. We have these metal uh, support posts in our basement. He climbed them, okay? Climbed them all the way to the top. Was hanging from the I-beam. It's just hanging there. So she, she, the boys came up and told her, and Dawn says, well, tell him to get down. They went down, came back. They said, he can't. He's, he's hanging there, you know? This, this is the kid that just a couple of days ago tripped and fell, and he split his lip open so bad. He's the one that's not going to make it till 10. He's just not. But this lip that was split open, it's already doing what? It's healing. Well, that's, that's not healing. Yeah, it is. God has created and designed your body that when it gets hurt, it heals. I've been to many surgeries, and I've seen many post-op pictures where there is stitches and staples that go 16, 18, 20 inches long. People have their chests cut open for heart surgery. Guess what? It heals. That is a natural miracle that God has designed and created. But it's not exciting. I think it's pretty amazing. And anytime one of the boys get hurt, well, one thing we always do is we pray for them, and we always say, watch it. Look in a couple of days. It's going to get better. God has designed that to be healed up. Is this something you see in the Bible? I kind of think you do. In John 9, there's a blind man. So he comes to Christ and he wants to be um, uh, healed. And so what Jesus does, well, he could have just touched him and healed him. We've seen him do that other places. No, he takes mud and, and he spits on it. And he kind of makes this mud pie, puts it right on the guy's face. He says, now go wash your face off. So the guy goes to this water, washes his face off, and the Bible says that when he washes the mud off, guess what? He can heal. Excuse me, he can see. It was a healing. It was a healing that happened over time. It was a healing where God used something. It still counts as a healing. There was another time in Mark chapter 8 where it wasn't instantaneous. There was a man that couldn't see, and Jesus touches him to heal him, and he says, what do you see? He goes, I see men like trees walking. So what does Jesus do? More spit, more mud. And he can see. Now, 
Those weren't instantaneous. Those weren't immediate. Those happened over time. And you know what? They still count. So what I see in my life sometimes is there are times where the Lord instantaneously touches and heals. Amen. There's also times where my body that's been created by God fights through things. And over a day or two, it feels better. I've been healed. That's not healing. That's just what happens. That's a God that's designed a body to fight and to heal itself. It's a fascinating thing. So, so often when we don't have that instantaneous healing, we get disappointed. God didn't move. God didn't work. Yeah, he did. He just worked through a different way than what you expected or what I expected, to be quite honest, what you wanted or what I wanted. If I have a headache and I try to go take a couple Advil, I pray that the Lord touches it, uses it, and I trust that he will. That's an amazing thing. He gave wisdom to man to create those things. I'm thankful for that. Now, the, the ultimate form of healing, to be quite honest, that we probably see the most, and, and to be honest, we really don't like, is the eternal healing that happens when we die. Listen to these passages. Revelation 21.4. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain for the former things that passed away. That's a healing. Now, the problem is that that is a healing that's what I, that we almost say is a secondary healing because the truth of the matter is God didn't really heal them. Because if, if he would have healed them, they would have got up out of that deathbed, they would have got out of that sickbed, and they would be walking around right now. And this is what happens. Somebody comes, and, and they have a very sick family member, and things don't look good in any way whatsoever. So they come and they say, Pastor, will you pray for healing? So we pray. The person ends up passing away. And then there's usually some comment from somebody that says, well, I guess it just wasn't the Lord's will for him to be healed. And I say, now wait a second. He, he is healed. And then they catch themselves, okay, yeah, I understand. He's healed for all of eternity. But I was talking about a real healing. No, 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 no. That is a real healing. I had somebody one time that told me, and they said, don't tell my family. I said, but if I'm ever sick, I'm ever laying on my deathbed, and they come and ask you to pray for healing, they said, don't you ever pray for me to be healed. I am ready to go home. I'm ready to be done. And they wanted that lasting, eternal healing. That, that is a healing. And we look at it as almost some type of defeat. We prayed, and they didn't get better, and I guess the Lord just took them. The Lord healed them for all of eternity. Their, their time and service on this world was done, and it wasn't that death defeated God. It wasn't that the curse defeated the power of God. God in his infinite wisdom said it's time for them to come home. And listen to what they come home to. We just read Revelation 21.4. No more death, no more sorrow, no more pain, no more tears. That sounds pretty good to me. Psalm 116 says this, Return to your rest, O my soul, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. You have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, and my feet from falling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. That sounds like a pretty good healing to me. My eyes are no longer going to be tearful. My feet are no longer going to fall. And I get to walk before the Lord in the land of the living. That's a good healing in my mind. And so there's those different types of healing. Now, obviously, we always want the instantaneous one. We'll accept over time the natural miracle. And if we have to, we'll accept the eternal one. Oh, boy, all three of them are absolutely amazing. If you've ever been around the instantaneous, then, hey, to God be the glory. What a privilege that is to see. But never take for granted how God has designed your body to just heal. And never take for granted in any way whatsoever, even though we lose a loved one, and let's just be blunt, we're selfish and we want that loved one back. That loved one, if they knew Christ, is experiencing full health and healing in heaven. Let's never, ever take that for granted. So let's talk about this for a second. Those are the three different types. Why does God do it? Maybe the better question is, why doesn't God always do it? But let's talk about the reasons why he does it. In Luke 17, it's the famous story of the ten lepers. We remember this from Sunday school. Ten lepers all had leprosy. God heals all ten. Only one comes back. What was the purpose of that healing? The purpose of that healing was to teach us thankfulness, to be thankful for the health that we have. 
It's amazing how when we're feeling good, we kind of take it for granted, but as soon as we start feeling rough, then we really want to feel good again. God says, always be thankful for what the Lord is doing in your life, being thankful for that. Next one, look here in Luke 4. We went through this one already, but did you see what happened in verse 39 in Luke 4? He stood over her, rebuked the fever, and it left her, and immediately she rose and served them. What is one of the purposes of healing? One of the purposes of healing is service. God says, I have touched you, I've made you better, now serve and I can't think of a better word, so don't take this word literally the way I say it. It's our way of repaying God. Lord, you have touched my life physically, spiritually, an amazing way. And now the way I want to respond to that is I want to serve you in all ways and all things. I want to serve you. And that's exactly what Peter's mother-in-law did, served him. Let's talk about another one here. Go to John 9, please. Let's look at this one here, John 9. John 9. So sometimes the healing happens for uh, teach us thankfulness. The healing happens to teach us service. Another interesting thing about healing here is if you look in the Bible from a New Testament perspective, there are not healers as you're going to John 9. There are not healers in the Bible. And I think this is very important. There is a gift of healing. It's something that happens. We believe in that. We teach that. We believe that. But there's not healers. This is important. Can you imagine? Let's just take out here at Harvest on staff. Let's say that uh, um, Rich had the gift of healing. He was the healer and I wasn't. So you would come up to me and say, hey, you know, I'm battling this right now. Uh, could you pray for me? And I would say, sure, I'd love to pray for you. And then you'd say, well, wait a second. Are, are you the healer? No, no, that's, that's rich. What would you say? Well, I don't want to talk to you. Let me go to the healer. After Sunday service, there'd be a lineup of 50 people just ready to talk to Rich. And that's why God doesn't have healers. He has a gift of healing that can happen through anybody at any time spontaneously through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what's important about that. Now, the problem is, and I've seen this, where people claim to be healers. And I've seen people make pilgrimage to the healers. I knew one family, and they were open and honest that before they got saved, they had a very sick child, and this child was battling some very deep sickness, and they didn't know Christ at the time. But there was a healer over in Indiana, and by golly, we're going to do everything we can to get over there. And they said they got over there, and there was this lineup of people, and everybody was waiting in line just to talk to the healer. That's not a biblical thing. That's taking a person and magnifying them over Christ. That is making more out of their ministry than what should be done. That's not what the Lord wants in any way. There's numerous examples in the Bible of where Christ healed from a distance. He didn't need to go touch the daughter. He needed to go touch the son. He said they're healed. Isn't it nice to know we have a Savior that can still do that? Look here in John 9, though. The question comes up, well, what's going on? Why are they sick anyway? Look at verse 1 of John 9. Now as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? That's a legitimate question, right? You got cancer. Well, what would you do wrong? Obviously, you did something wrong. I mean, that's obviously why it happened, because good people don't get sick. Well, that's not a biblical point in any way whatsoever. And I've also seen people go the other way. My aunt, who is perfect, she's the perfect saint of all saints. She's the one that gets cancer, but yet my neighbor, who's a heathen, who, who curses God, he's the one that's now living to 90 and in perfect health. That's not fair. Well, right here, similar question. This person is blind from birth. Obviously, someone screwed up. Obviously, he did something wrong in the womb, and so therefore he was born blind. Obviously, his parents were some type of horrible sinners, and so therefore he was born blind. We have this tendency to think because someone has a physical limitation, sometimes people think, well, they're obviously they did something wrong. Well, what's Christ's response to that? Verse 3, Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but the works of God should be revealed in him. Jesus says, paraphrase, this guy didn't do anything wrong, his parents didn't do anything wrong, but this happened, so therefore I could be glorified. See, this is what I see a lot of times in my life, and it's really difficult to see in my life. It's much easier to see it in your life. It's when something bad happens in your life, 
I see God using it for a deeper purpose to get the glory. Now, what's in my life? Woe is me. Why did this happen? I'm always the one that gets sick. I'm always the one that gets hurt. Obviously, God doesn't like me. But yet, when I see it in your life, I say, oh, God's going to use this. See, God's going to use this. This boy was born blind. How old was he? We don't know for sure. Obviously, he was of age. Because what happens here, if you want to further study, read the rest of John 9. Because it's an absolutely amazing story. This guy gets healed, then they take him to the Pharisees and Sadducees, and he starts witnessing to the Pharisees and Sadducees, and then he comes back and meets Jesus again, and Jesus takes care of him spiritually. The whole chapter is amazing. But right here in verse 3, Jesus comes out and says, His physical limitations have nothing to do with the sin that he did or his parents did. These physical limitations are here for my glory and my glory alone. Isn't it fascinating? Some of these things that we look at our lives... As weaknesses, God says, whoa, that's not a weakness. That's something I'm using for my glory. Verse 4, I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. As long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. When he said these things, he spat on the ground, made clay with the saliva, anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay, and he said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Verse 8, therefore the neighbors and those who previously had seen this, he was blind, said, is this not he who sat and begged? What an amazing thing that is. That's the thing about healing. Healing is one of those things, that when you stop and you look at it, you, it can't be answered. That's the definition of a miracle. The unexplained working of God. It makes you realize it's only him and him alone and nothing else can do it. Healing can be instantaneous. It can be over time. It can also be eternal. Ultimately, if you are walking with Christ, no matter what physical thing you are facing, you will be healed. It may be an instantaneous heal. It may be an overtime. It may be not until you walk into the gates of heaven. But you will be healed. And that's one of the ministries that Christ had on this earth was the healing ministry to show what? His power over the curse, his power over the enemy, his power over life and death. Which then brings us to our point again at the beginning. If Christ has power over the curse, the enemy, and life and death, why am I worried about anything? If he can take care of this. He can take care of me. Now, let's talk about the other one now. The unclean spirits, demons. This is the thing that, that we always get a little worked up about. And you've heard me say this numerous times out here. It's important for us to have a balance with this. And, and I guarantee you, it's probably going to happen today because it happens almost any time I teach on the spiritual realm. There's always someone comes up and says, Pastor, it didn't hit it hard enough. He's everywhere, causing problems. He's everywhere. Satan, that is. Then there's the other group that comes up and says, do we have to talk about this all the time because that makes me scared? Okay, let's look at the balance here. First off, number one, hate to burst your bubble, he's not everywhere. We've already talked about the enemy numerous times before. He's not omnipresent. He'd be one place at one time. And I heard somebody tell me this one time. He goes, anytime someone comes up and says, boy, Satan's really getting me, he goes, his thought is, I'm not good enough for Satan to have to worry about. There's six billion people in this world. I know I'm not near the top. I know I'm not. You know, I may get one of his lackeys, but I'm not getting him. I know that for a fact. We don't have to live in fear of him. Why don't we have to live in fear? Because Jesus created him. He's a created being. He's power over the enemy. We've already talked about that numerous times. I'll make reference again to the Wednesday night lesson we did just a few weeks ago. We just talked about temptation in the wilderness a couple weeks ago. We've established this fact. But yet we live in fear. You know what happens when you live in fear? When you live in fear, you're not living in faith. You're basically saying, I'm so scared of this thing. God says, well, why are you scared? Well, what about this and that? No, that's where faith steps in. And the other realm then is when we don't want to talk about them. Paul came right out and said in Corinthians, he said, let's not be ignorant of these things. Let's not stick our head in the sand and just pretend it doesn't happen, it doesn't exist. There is a spiritual realm out there. We don't fully get it. We don't fully understand it. Why? Because we're not spiritual. 
We're fleshly. And it's hard for us to get a glimpse into this realm. It's hard for us to fully understand what's going on. So when we read these passages here in the Gospels, and we see this tiny glimpse into the spiritual realm, we sit there and say, well, that's funky. It is. And you're not spiritual because we're fleshly. It is a little funky. Now, let's just make sure we understand this, and this is something we believe, and this is something we teach out here at Harvest Fellowship, is that we believe as a believer that you don't have to worry about being spiritually possessed. 1 John 4, 4 says, Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. The Holy Spirit lives inside of us. Satan's not kicking him out. I'm okay with that. 1 John 5, 18, when same book there, John comes out and he talks about this as well. He talks about how it's the Lord's hand that is upon us. 1 John 5, 18 reads this, We know that whoever is born of God does not sin, but he who has been born of God keeps himself, and the wicked one does not touch him. The wicked one does not touch him. Now, what is the term then? For you good old King Jamesers out there, the term is buffet. Not a word that we use too much in English language. NIV translates it torment. But in Corinthians, Paul talks about this, about how the messenger of Satan in 2 Corinthians 12 buffets him. That word buffet means to literally beat. As believers, we, we can't be possessed, 1 John 4, 14, excuse me, 4, 4. The wicked one can't touch us, 1 John 5.18, but we can be buffeted. I, I'm sure we've all been through those things where we feel like every time we stand up spiritually, we're just getting knocked down left and right. See, we know from studying the book of Job that there's a hedge of protection around us. And sometimes God willfully allows that hedge of protection down to allow the enemy into our lives to buffet us. That sounds mean. Depends on how you look at it. Sometimes we need to be taught a lesson. Sometimes we do. We had a situation just recently at home, back to the story of Kenan. Ken has been pushing the limits here as of late. He did something he shouldn't have done. After the whole pole incident hanging from the ceiling, we find out later that evening the boys come and say, Ken is hanging from the top of the bunk bed, being like a little gymnast, swinging back and forth. I go in there, and I say, Kenan? And he said, yeah. I said, were you swinging from the top of the bed? He goes, yes, I was. Before I could say anything, he goes, please don't discipline me. I won't do it again. And my boys, one of the best terms they know theologically is they know the definition of grace. Because one of the things we teach them is grace means you don't get disciplined. That's what it means. And so even our two-year-old will ask for grace. And so what happens is Kenan, he says, please don't discipline me. I won't. Before I can even say anything, please don't discipline me. I was doing it. I won't do it again. Can I have grace? I said, yes, I'll give you grace. So 45 minutes later, they come in. I say, Kenan's on the door, hanging onto the, the door now, swinging back and forth on the door handle. So I go, Kenan. And he says, I won't do it again. Please don't do it. Can I have grace? And I said, uh, not this time. No. Um, hedge of protection went down. Hedge of protection went down to teach him a lesson to keep him safe longer in life. Point is, sometimes in my life, unbeknownst to me, God says, James, I need to rock your world a little bit. I do. I need to, buff I need to have you be buffeted a little bit. Not because I don't love you, not because I'm a mean, nasty God, but I love you so much that sometimes I need to teach you a lesson. The discipline of God, and the Bible says if you're disciplined of God, not in any translations, as in my translation, count yourself lucky because he loves you. Now, the other reason sometimes he allows the hedge of protection down and the enemy to come in, Job, is to be a light and a witness to others. As we've said out here numerous times, we like to study the book of Job, we like to read the book of Job, but no one wants to live the book of Job. No one wants to be Job of where your life falls apart physically, emotionally, spiritually, so that way people can look at you and say, wow, I couldn't go through what you go through. It's so neat to see what God's doing, and you're such a witness through your trials and tribulations. I've never met anybody that said, yes, amen. I wanted the trials and tribulations to further the kingdom of Christ. No, I want you to have the trials and tribulations, so that way I can make reference to you in the message. I don't want to live it. I want somebody else to live it, and I can learn from it. 
But God sometimes allows us to go through it so that way we can be a light and a witness for him. So what we see here in the Bible is 1 John 4, 4, the protection of God. But we also see the buffeting of the enemy. We see the hedge of protection in Job sometimes go down because the Lord allowed that to happen and God uses it. Now most of the time though when we see the enemy get involved here in the Gospels, it's always something really crazy. They're in some cemetery, running around naked, foaming at the mouth, yelling and screaming, and they're trying to put chains on them and they can't. We don't see that stuff today. But it's interesting. When you also see in the Bible the enemy get in someone's life, the Bible says Judas, that Satan came into Judas. Judas wasn't running around naked. He wasn't foaming at the mouth. He wasn't yelling and screaming. He was calm, cool, and collect. We know in Revelation 13 that the Antichrist, the power that he gets, comes from the enemy. And I'm telling you right now, the Antichrist is going to be one of the most charismatic people that's ever lived. So just because we see this in the Gospels doesn't mean that's the way it always is. Because what we see in the Gospels, one of the things that the enemy likes to do is he likes to use fear. That's one of the most powerful tools of the enemy is fear. So we read these stories, we think these things, and you know what? We become fearful. And so when we become fearful, as we've already established earlier on here today, when we're fearful, we don't walk in faith goes back to our first point. If Christ has power over the curse, the enemy, life, and death, why are we worried? We have nothing to be afraid of. This is what I want to finish with. Go to Mark chapter 5, please. Mark 5. Let's do one last example of this and bring this all together here in Mark 5. Part of the reason why we're doing a lesson like this today rather than our typical verse by verse is because now when we run into these subjects here later on in our study on Luke, we can make reference back to this. Mark chapter 5, please. What you see here in Mark chapter 5, they're crossing to the other side of the sea in verse 1. And as they cross the other side of the sea, verse 2, this is what happens. When he, meaning Jesus, had come out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tomb a man with an unclean spirit, who had his dwelling among the tombs, and no one could bind him, not even with chains, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been pulled apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces. Neither could anyone tame him. And as always, night and day, he was in the mountains and the tombs, crying out and cutting himself with stones. Now, when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and worshipped him. Now, isn't verse 6 absolutely fascinating? When the demon is encountered with Christ, verse 6, he worships him. Who has the power? The Lord. The Lord has the power. The demon knows who he's dealing with. Verse 7, he cried out with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, the Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God that you do not torment me. We know from the book of James that even demons believe in God and do not sh- and shudder, the Bible says. The demons know who they're dealing with. They were created by Christ. So when we sit here walking in fear of the spiritual realm, I think Jesus up in heaven just sighs deeply saying, Guys, I can handle this. This is exactly what happens. When the demon comes and sees him, verse 6, he worships him. He knows who he's dealing with. I implore you, son of the most high God, Jesus. He knows exactly what he's dealing with. Verse 8. He said to him, Come out of the man, unclean spirit. And then he asked him, What is your name? And he answered, saying, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he also begged him earnestly that he would not send them out of the country. Now a large herd of swine was feeding there near the mountains. So all the demons begged him, saying, Send us in the swine that we may enter them. And at once Jesus gave them permission. Did you catch that in verse 13? They only could do what Christ gave them permission to do. Who has the power here? Verse 13. Then the unclean spirits went out and entered the swine. But there were about 2,000, which makes you wonder how many demons were inside of him. And the herd ran violently down the steep place into the sea and drowned into the sea. 
So all those who fed the swine fled and the told in the city and the country, and they went out to see what was there that had happened. You see the destructive nature of the enemy here. One of the first verses I learned after I got saved was John 10.10, 10, where it says, The thief, Satan, comes to steal, kill, and destroy. You see this exactly here, this destructive nature. Verse 15, Then they came to Jesus and saw the one who had been demon-possessed and had the legion sitting and clothed in his right mind, and they were afraid. That's a fascinating verse to me. Look at that one more time. They came to Jesus, saw the one who had been demon-possessed and had the legion sitting and clothed in his right mind, and they were afraid. They were more afraid of him being sane than when they were when he was insane. Did you catch that? That, that really spooked him out, that he's okay now. See, isn't that the truth? Sometimes when it comes to spiritual matters, it, it makes us scared. It's a little nerve-wracking. When someone comes to us and says, you know, I was praying the other day, and the Lord really revealed something to me, and he shared this with me, and, I, and it's like, whoa, you talk to God? That's, I don't, I don't want to know about that. Or you know what? I've got to share the story with you real quick. This person was healed and it was amazing. I saw, whoa, I, I, no, no, I, I really don't get that. I don't really understand that. We're sometimes more afraid of when God moves and works than when he doesn't move and work. We're fleshly people. So as fleshly people, we're used to things of the flesh. And things of the flesh... God doesn't really speak to us. People aren't really healed. These type of things don't happen. So when a spiritual realm opens up and we see this, we're a lot like verse 15. We're afraid a little bit. It's easier to look at this guy and say, hey, I remember when he was naked and foaming and yelling, screaming and cutting himself. We just stayed away from him. Now that he's sane, well, that's scary. That's scary. Verse 16, and when they saw it, told them how it happened to him who had been demon-possessed and about the swine. They then began to plead with him to depart from the region. Isn't that the response of humans too? When Jesus moves and works, we usually ask him to leave. Don't get too crazy about Christ. It'll make people uncomfortable. And when you get really crazy about the Lord, he'll ask you to leave. So what happens is, love God, but, but keep a little bit of the old in you. Go out every now and then and get wasted. Say a few cuss words and, and do things like that. People will find you more acceptable. But if you really get crazy for Christ, they're going to ask you to leave. That's human nature. We don't like it when things really change. And that's why as born-again believers, when we really get on fire for the Lord, we always think it's going to make a huge difference in our life, and there's going to be so much more peace and harmony. What I notice is this. Yes, there's more peace and harmony in you personally, but in your life with other people, it gets more difficult. Because you just went from the demon-possessed person that was crazy and weird and more acceptable, and then now that you're sane and clothed in your right mind, People don't want to have anything to do with you because they remember the old you, and that was much more acceptable. This is what happens. People constantly push Jesus out when he does stuff. It's too weird. It's too strange. I heard a pastor teach one time, and I don't know if this is true or not, but he said part of the reason why maybe they wanted him to leave, he just killed all their pigs. Now think about this for a second. If these are good Jewish boys, why are they raising pigs in the first place? They shouldn't have been. This was contraband pig. They wanted some contraband bacon. This is another thing that Jesus does, and we really don't like it. Christ comes into our life, and he starts cleaning out things. I got a herd of 2,000 swine in my life, and Jesus says, they need to go. Oh, come on, man. We don't like it. So part of the reason why maybe they were upset is because they just lost a lot of money. They lost a lot of fleshly things, and it was easier to tell Jesus to go than to stay. And isn't that what happens spiritually? It's easier to tell Jesus to go. Don't change my life real a bunch. Don't change my marriage a lot. Don't really move in my life because when you do, it, it's awkward. It's a little strange. I'm not used to it. So can't I just keep things status quo and then also inherit salvation? No. When Christ comes into your life, he will get rid of swine in your life. He's going to make people uncomfortable in your life. 
He's going to totally change you. That's what Jesus does. Look at the response of the man, verse 18. When he had gotten to the boat, he who had been demon-possessed begged him that he might be with him. However, Jesus did not permit him, but he said to him, Go home to your friends. Tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he has shown compassion on you. And he departed and began to proclaim in Decapolis, which means the ten cities, all that Jesus had done for him and all marveled. See, this is another thing we do. When we get saved and with the Lord, we want to leave. And I'm not picking on anybody. Don't take it this way. I see people, this happens a lot. They get born again and saved, and the first thing they want to do is what? Missions work. I want to leave. Boy, if you've had a life-changing encounter with Christ, maybe the best mission work you could do is stay right where you're at and let people see your changed life in the Lord. No, that's not ministry. That's not mission work. I need to go to Zimbabwe and go do something. Yeah, Zimbabwe needs Jesus. I'm not doubting that in any way whatsoever. But it's amazing. This guy wanted to go with Christ. He wanted to go on a missions trip. Verse 19, Jesus said, Stay at your house and just tell people about what I did for you. Guys, you, where you live, where you work, is a mission field. And if the Lord has done amazing changes in your life, Plant yourself right there and allow people to see the changes in your life, in your marriage, and the way you deal with people. Let that be a witness to them. That's exactly what Christ told him here. We don't have to go to some far-reaching part of the world to change people for the Lord. We can allow our changed lives in Christ stay right where it's at. That's what the Lord does. That's what the Lord did in this man's life. What an amazing thing that is. Just to remind you, power over the curse, power over the enemy, power over life and death. That's what it shows when he deals with the demons. That's what it shows when he deals with sickness. So all those things show that he is the powerful one. He is God, the Messiah, the Savior, the only one that could do that. With that being said, if he's so mighty and he's so powerful, what do we have to worry about? He will take care of everything we need when we submit our lives over to him. Marvin Kelly, if you guys want to come forward here for the final song. I just want to encourage you, for those that are getting baptized today, keep them in prayer. If you want to come out to it, it's going to be a wonderful time, 4.30 at the home of uh, Bill and Shirley. We've got a good group getting baptized. I think we're up to about 12 or so. So uh, it's always neat to be involved with that. And if that's something that interests you and you're kind of wondering about that, don't be afraid to talk to 